Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back with part three of our discussion of the invention of photography. Now, last time we got up to the moment of invention, the debut of the daguerreotype of, uh, of mm-hmm. course, Louis Daguerre in Paris and the uh, the early uh, paper-based negative photo procedure of Henry Fox Talbot in England, which was initially far less successful. Right. Yeah, we, we spent a lot of time talking about the, the early laborious uh, methods of taking a photograph, uh, but the, the, the startling and just game-changing results uh, that they gave us. Um, you know, in, in all that discussion of daguerreotypes, I neglected to mention uh, my daguerreotype boyfriend. And what is this? This is a uh, – I believe it was a Tumblr page. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was just a collection of like handsome dudes with their, <laughs> uh, you know, with their photo uh, having been taken with a daguerreotype. A lot of like uh, uh, really neat sideburns and whatnot. Uh, but it was kind of a, a trend at least a few years ago. I remember it making the rounds and people having a lot of fun with it. I'm looking at it now. You know, one of the things is nobody's smiling in their daguerreotype. Oh, yes. Some guys look kind of smug, but it's not really a smile. Right, and there's an important reason for that, which we'll get into in this episode. This is a great blog now that I'm looking at it. Do (laughs) do you have a favorite uh, old-school daguerreotype, or I don't know if it's actually a daguerreotype, the one I'm going to bring up, an an old-school photograph doppelganger, a favorite one of those? Of course, I love the old Nicolas Cage from the 19th century. Yeah, I think that's the main one that comes to mind. Uh, Because, yeah, you go back through enough photographic uh, history, uh, even though we we have – very little of it, really. I mean, can, can, compared to the you know the the, the deeper history of uh, of the human species, but yeah, you can find these weird doppelgangers where you're like, yeah, that, that looks like Steve Buscemi, especially if I just kind of <laughs> you know blur my eyes a little bit. Yeah. So last time we covered this transition from the resin-based heliography method of uh, Joseph uh, Nicephor Nieps, the the French inventor and scientist and aristocrat, uh, to the big breakthrough announced and described in 1839 by Louis Daguerre, the daguerreotype method, which uh, for a brief refresher on how that worked, remember it it, it had many steps. So that was sort of uh, Daguerre's breakthrough was Mm -hmm. the multi-step chemistry procedure. Um, So it involved sensitizing a silver-coated plate with iodine fumes, and this would produce a layer of the light-sensitive compound silver iodide, and then you'd expose that plate inside a camera obscura, and then – and this is the real genius step – you would take the lightly exposed plate on which the image would still be invisible to the naked eye. You couldn't see anything yet. And you would develop that by exposing it to mercury fumes, which would bring out the latent image on the plate and create a sharp contrast. Uh, And then finally, you'd wash off the remaining silver iodide to prevent further darkening. And originally... And this washing off step took place in uh, in hot salt water until the better solution of hyposulfite of soda, now known as sodium theosulfate, was uh, suggested by John Herschel. Now, I think it's widely agreed that Daguerre's most original and brilliant contribution to the invention of photography was this chemical development stage. Of course, the development was so useful because it greatly cut down on exposure times, which before had been very long. Before the development stage, you might have to expose a plate for hours at a time, like maybe seven hours or 12 hours before the image would really come through on it. Uh, You only had to get a very faint initial exposure of maybe 10 to 15 minutes before you could develop it with the mercury fumes. Which sounds like a lot <laughs> to, to us, but but like you said, that was a huge uh, improvement over hours of exposure time. Yeah, gigantic difference back then. I mean, that it made it suddenly realistic to photograph landscapes. Mm-hmm. So if, if you had to expose a plate for hours on a landscape, all the shadows would be messed up, right? I mean, shadows are such an important part of our, our view of the natural world. If the shadows keep shifting over the many hours of exposure, nothing's going to look right. Um, now, also in the last episode, we talked about the English polymath, scientist, politician, and inventor Henry Fox Talbot, who had independently invented a kind of different method of photography uh, years earlier in England. But unfortunately, even though he invented it first, he never got around to publishing his findings until after Daguerre announced his invention in France and was cemented in the minds of most people as the inventor of photography. Uh, Henry Fox Talbot's original method was different. It used paper instead of these 
sensitized metal plates. He sensitized the paper to light by coating it in silver chloride, and then he would expose it in a camera for a longer period than Daguerre's final method, and then wash it off afterward to stop the exposure. Now, Talbot actually had a few different methods over time. After Daguerre's method was announced in 1839, Talbot eventually went on to create and patent a different process known as the calotype, which also made use of a different chemical form of Daguerre's concept of development, right, to shorten the exposure time needed in the camera. And while Daguerre's method produce these kind of sharp, one-of-a-kind, positive, shiny, reflective images on metal plates, Talbot's method produced kind of fuzzy, soft, but highly replicable, copyable, negative images on paper. So these are the two main things you've got by 1839, 1840. And again, we just have to drive home how photography was this collision of uh, advancements in optics, chemistry, uh, and the arts. All of it coming together uh, at just the right time uh, with just the right individuals. Yeah, and one of the things we talked about in the last episode is how surprising it is that this this first big breakthrough comes from Louis Daguerre, who was not a scientist. Right. He, was not, he was not trained in chemistry. Daguerre was a painter. He was an artist. I mean, he was clearly a very clever and energetic kind of go-getter. Yeah. But he, he was not trained in chemistry. He didn't have a lot of scientific knowledge. He was kind of just bumbling around in the dark in a way, at least at first. Mm -hmm. And one of the funny things about this is we know a lot about what Henry Fox Talbot was doing because he usually took extensive notes and journals about his ideas and his projects. Daguerre generally did not. So remember last time we talked about how Louis Daguerre had this brief partnership with with Nisiphore Niepce. How Daguerre got from Niepce's heliography, which used this resin and wasn't really like the ultimate process of the daguerreotype, to the daguerreotype, what happened in those years in between is not fully known. We don't have accurate, reliable information about what Daguerre's post-Niepce partnership experiments were or like what roadmap of discoveries led to his invention. So there's kind of a mystery there. There there are stories that were reported later – uh, one common example of one of these stories is the story about uh, Daguerre's magic cabinet. Have you ever heard about this? Uh, no, but it already sounds uh, uh, perhaps a little dramatized, you know? Yeah, it, uh, it very well could be apocryphal. Mm-hmm. But that's always the tendency, right? Like, do you lay out the various steps and and uh, minor revelations that lead to uh, some sort of an invention? Or do you come up with something uh, more sexy, like, I saw it in a dream? Yeah. You know? Or do you tell a good story? Yeah. yeah. And so the magic cabinet is one of these good stories that might not be true. Supposedly, it was about how he discovered the developing process, his most his most important key insight on photography, the mercury fumes to bring out the latent image from a short exposure. Supposedly what happened is that Daguerre had underexposed a plate and then he put it inside a cabinet that he was storing some chemicals in and then came back later and found that the underexposed plate had had an image brought out in it. And it was like, whoa, what's going on here? And he realized it must have been exposure to one of the chemicals in the cabinet. So he just started removing one chemical chemical at a time and trying to figure out what it was until eventually he had removed everything from the cabinet and the cabinet was still doing this. It was still uh, bringing out the image in underexposed plates until he discovered that some mercury had been spilled inside the cabinet and it was this spill that was was creating – bringing the image out. Huh. Well, you know, that seems like a plausible story. Mm-hmm. And even if it didn't quite happen like that, it is a, it is a nice way of describing, uh, you know, how he might have discovered it. You know, like yeah. it's a nice story-shaped explanation. Yes. And I will say for all of Daguerre's uh, apparently good qualities, he he does not strike me, having read a good bit about his life now, as someone who would be above making up a story about <laughs> how things came about because he was a salesman. You know, yeah, he was yeah. a businessman. Oh, yeah, a lot of his uh, his accomplishments came from, uh, you know, as we said in the last episode, you know, being a great networker, mm-hmm. uh, being charismatic, being able to bring people together and get them behind uh, his vision. Yes, exactly. Uh, so when Daguerre revealed his method publicly, he actually – he did not take out a patent on the process anywhere except in England. <laughs> or I don't know if he actually held it. I think a different guy 
held this patent, but there was a patent on the daguerreotype process in England, but only in England. Uh, and instead, daguerre was given a pension by the French government, and the daguerreotype method was sort of presented as a free gift to the world from France, except, I guess, to England. <laughs> Henry Fox Talbot, on the other hand, he tried to patent his calotype process, uh, though he faced enormous resistance and public scorn. And it is amazing, by the way, to read sections from articles in publications like The Economist viciously attacking the very concept of patents as, quote, injurious to the progress of production and to the common welfare and thus illegitimate in the light of the principle of property rights. Huh. Can you imagine that? Well, yeah, I, 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 it certainly makes sense. I mean, you still see uh, various discussions these days about uh, things that are being patented, certainly in the, you know, sort of the you know, uh, genetic sciences. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it's not too much of a leap to imagine people getting upset about the, the idea of patenting photography, especially in retrospect, seeing like what effects photography had. I, I'm not surprised in that it's not that I don't think it's a legitimate ethical debate to be had. I'm just kind of surprised we'd see this coming from The Economist in the 1840s. <laughs> yeah. It also seems a little unfair that Talbot is the one who is who uh, who gets it here. Yeah. You know, because he's, he's kind of coming up uh, uh, just a little behind uh, Daguerre uh, at every turn. Yeah. And uh, so in those first few decades, the world of photography was absolutely dominated by the daguerreotype. And, and Talbot really seems to have gotten the short end of the stick, even though his insight of producing negatives that could be easily copied would later prove hugely important to photography, as, as you might guess. Uh, but anyway, pretty much immediately after it was publicly explained and demonstrated, the daguerreotype became enormously popular and people all over were trying it out. Uh, initial reception of, of the method was, was mostly extremely positive. And in the last episode, we discussed a few examples of this, like the absolutely glowing reception uh, the daguerreotype got from Edgar Allan Poe when he described its quality as, quote, truth itself in the supremeness of its perfection. That's a glowing review. One of the types of reviews that I like less, I feel kind of icky about, but I see pretty often is people who are repeatedly uh, negatively comparing traditional artistic methods <laughs> to, to the daguerreotype. Like the, there's this example published in the Gazette de France in, uh, in its announcement about the daguerreotype in 1839, quote, you will see how far from the truth of the daguerreotype are your pencils and brushes. That's right. Art is for lunatics now. <laughs> It sounds like a line that would be spoken by like a villain in a video game, yeah. you know, that's already been translated poorly once. Yes. You will see how weak are your brushes. But I, I can I can imagine there might be, you know, those, that kind of tension, right? It's mm -hmm. kind of like, oh, my goodness, photos exist now. Is this going to impact my career as a painter? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, can, we, we always see that kind of anxiety and perhaps, uh, you know, overestimation of of what a new technology can do. Exactly. And and I think in some ways that reaction was sort of reasonable even though you know we view painting and photography as different things. Mm -hmm. Obviously, some artists would have viewed photography not just as a new art form, but as a substitute for realist painting or a general replacement for traditional forms of art. I want to mention a story that's related in one of my main sources on these episodes, a book by Helen Rappaport and Roger Watson called Capturing the Light, The Birth of Photography, A True Story of Genius and Rivalry, which is a, a great book that goes into detail on the lives of uh, Louis Daguerre and Henry Fox Talbot especially – but uh, there's a section where it, it mentions this famous story that's only reported many years after the fact. So, again, possibly untrue, kind of like Daguerre's own story about where the idea of the mercury fumes came from. But this is a story that the realist painter Paul Delaroche, who was known for realistic-looking depictions of historical scenes, such as the execution of Lady Jane Grey. You might have seen that painting yes. before. Mm -hmm. uh, that he saw a daguerreotype for the first time and commented, quote, from today, painting is dead. <laughs> so – he may not have actually said this, but it no doubt reflects like an anxiety that some yeah. in the art world must have felt. And remember, today 
we appreciate photography and painting as a, as like separate art forms. They each have their own uses. But before photography, painting wasn't just a fine art. It also served practical purposes that we now mostly leave up entirely to photography, such as family portraiture. Like while photography doesn't supersede all forms of painting, there were clearly some cases where it did simply automate work that would once have been done by a human painter. Yeah, uh, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, how like the, the one area that we were, or one of the few areas we were able to sort of keep uh, photography out of was is the, the courtroom. Yeah, uh, in some cases where you have uh, <laughs> where you have the, the courtroom uh, sketch uh, still being a, a, an important part uh-huh. of the journalistic effort there. That's a funny inversion because yeah. I mean one of the earliest uses of photography that we'll discuss later on is like a it's like a form of objective evidence to use in court. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there are prohibitions in some cases of allowing cameras into the courtrooms, and so now you get to see like what. Does it look like when you draw a picture of Paul Manafort? You know? Yeah, yeah, and some of these uh, pictures uh, are still rather amusing in the uh, ambiguity that is sometimes possible uh, with just a, a, a what is you know probably a, a, a rushed sketch mm-hmm. of. Uh, of, of happenings in a courtroom. Now, apart from the anxiety of painters and artists, there also uh, were a few at least who questioned the morality or propriety of uh, photography as a medium. Hmm. And there was a really interesting article that was quoted in, in Watson and Rappaport's book from a German publication called the Leipziger Staatenzeiger. And it goes a little something like this, quote, The wish to capture evanescent reflections is not only impossible, as has been shown by thorough German investigation, but the mere desire alone, the will to do so, is blasphemy. (laughs) Blasphemy. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. God created man in his own image, and no man-made machine may fix the image of God. Is it possible that God should have abandoned his eternal principles and allowed a Frenchman in Paris to give to the world an invention of the devil? (laughs) The idea of the revolution, fraternity, and Napoleon's ambition to turn Europe into one realm, all these crazy ideas Monsieur Daguerre now claims to surpass because he wants to outdo the creator of the world. If this thing were at all possible, then something similar would have been done a long time ago in antiquity by men like Archimedes or Moses. But if these wise men knew nothing of mirror pictures made permanent, then one can straightaway call the Frenchman de Guerre who boasts of such unheard of things the fool of fools. Well, that's the, that's a kind of a confusing review. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, he can't possibly do it and since he's doing it, it's very bad. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Uh, so that is, that is definitely a negative review for um, the daguerreotype. Well, I think it's interesting because this does not seem to be a common reaction to it. It seems right. by and large people were very excited by it, but it does reflect – the general impression of the magnitude of photography as an invention, right? It seems absurd now that people would think of photography as a blasphemy, but I think it's possible back then for people to think this way because this was such a strange and new and unheard of thing. And yet, at the at the same time, like like I'm I'm, try, I'm really zoning in on uh, no man made machine may fix the image of God. Now, yeah. obviously, people were, and again, saying this because the idea that uh, man is made in the um, uh, in, in the likeness of uh, God and all that. But uh, so so just merely fixing the image of God can't be the thing he's upset about because because painting did that. Right. It's the idea that it's a machine. Is it this idea that? That we have made a thing that does the thing? Is this like a Butlerian jihad kind of situation? <laughs> oh, yeah. You shall not uh, make an image in the li- – or what? Make a machine in the likeness of humans? Of a human mind. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it reminds me a lot of that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean there is a thing that's very often mentioned by people writing about photography at the time in the 1840s and 1850s. Is there? There's all this mention of the sun. I think now because we often take photos – in rooms with artificial light, like mm-hmm. our cameras are more sensitive. They can take dim photos. We have camera was cameras with flashes. We have, you know, brighter artificial lights. Back then, there was all, all of this talk about how when you take a photo, it's heliography, right? The sun is drawing your pictures for you. It's all about sunlight because that was the only light that was generally bright enough to actually create a photo exposure. 
So I think maybe this association with the sun is one of the reasons that somebody might have a more religious reaction to it, right? That, that, mm. that it's like the sun, the source of all, you know, the, the symbol of God's glory shining down on all things bright and beautiful, all things great and small. Now it's making images for you and this is a perversion of the light that God has given to us. He's fixed it in darkness. Yeah. yeah. But like I said, I, I do not get any indication that this was like a major opinion. It might have been popular in Germany. I don't know, just because they didn't like Frenchmen. <laughs> they didn't like the fact that uh, that Daguerre, that this was like something that France was bragging about. It's like, oh, here's our free gift to the world. And and some Frenchmen really did take take on that idea, right, of, of, oh, yeah. of, of giving it to the world, of sharing photography with the world. Yeah, overall, people loved the daguerreotype, and it gave way to a sort of daguerreotype craze in which amateur and professional photographers by the hundreds embarked on all kinds of projects of documenting things. One example in the early days is this French optician named Noël Paymal Lerabour, and he had the idea to equip a team of traveling daguerreotypists to go around the world and capture images of foreign landscapes and sites of interest and then to send the images back to Paris so that people could see these places like Niagara Falls, like the Great Mosque of Algiers, or like the Acropolis, see them in full realism for the first time. Larabor wanted to publish them in a book, which he did in 1841, called Excursion Daguerriennes, Daguerriennes, I think. <laughs> uh, except there's a problem. Because remember what's true about the daguerreotype. The daguerreotype is an opaque, one-of-a-kind print on a metal plate. Ah, that's right. It can't be copied directly. And at the time, certainly it couldn't be printed in a book. So unfortunately, the best he could do was to have the daguerreotypes from these locations redrawn by hand (laughs) as engravings so they could be printed in the book, uh, which is – I mean, on one hand, there there actually was a great level of realism in these engravings and illustrations since the engravings were copied from real photographs, but they weren't the photographs themselves. A kind of bizarre irony. The first, like, big book of photographs wasn't, was, yeah, it wasn't was photographs. A, a book of illustrations, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue to discuss uh, the daguerreotype craze and other developments in early photography. All right, we're back. Now, remember, uh, the daguerreotype was revealed in 1839. It was sort of announced, I think, in January, and then he really described his process publicly in August. And by December 1839, there were already jokes about how trendy this new invention of photography had become. One really great one is a lithograph by the artist Theodore Morissette called La Daguerreotypomanie. I think that's the French version. I think it means daguerreotypomania. Uh Uh, And it is this manic, Hieronymus Bosch-like hell of people swarming all around with camera boxes and photographing everything. There's even a camera hanging from a hot air balloon, apparently anticipating, like, spy planes. Uh, My favorite detail is up in the upper right of the image, uh, which appears to be some kind of occult ritual in which pagan revelers are dancing in a circle lasciviously around a steaming vat of mercury. Remember, the mercury fumes were the, were the chemical insight used to develop the quick exposed print. Yeah, this is uh, amusing because it also reminds me of our reaction to various other bits of technology. In fact, often uh, photographic technology, uh, like for instance, uh, selfie sticks come to mind. Oh, yeah. You can, you can well imagine the same illustration popping up in a uh, you know, contemporary newspaper to uh, criticize the widespread use of selfie sticks or, the po- or a Pokemon phone game or whatever kind of handheld technological craze is sweeping the nation. Uh Uh-huh. Well, you know who hated selfies was the French poet Charles Baudelaire. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, Well, obviously, they didn't have selfies then. But the equivalent. uh, So I would like to talk a bit about portraits of people because this is one of the most important early uses of photography. But to quote Baudelaire writing in 1859 about the early days of photography, uh, get this. A vengeful God has given ear to the prayers of this multitude. Daguerre was his Messiah. From that moment, our squalid society rushed, Narcissus to a man, to gaze at his trivial image on a scrap of metal. A madness, an extraordinary fanaticism, took possession of all these new sun worshippers. There's the sun again, but also – so he's being a jerk. He's being like the grump who's mad about selfie sticks. But at the same time – 
He's not wrong, right? Like, once people could take photos, what's the one thing people would really most want photos of? Well, themselves, right? And right. in a less narcissistic vein of their families and loved ones. But obviously, there was a lot of demand for people to have photos of themselves and people they knew. And this is a far more uh, affordable option, uh, even at, at this level of photography, compared to uh, getting, say, a, a talented painter, uh, hiring a, a painter to uh, to create your likeness on a, on a canvas. That's absolutely true. Photography was an egalitarian innovation. Painted portraiture was very expensive. Only the rich could afford it. But even regular people could save up to pay a daguerreotypist for a portrait, an individual portrait or a family portrait. This suddenly put realistic uh, imagery of people within the the pocketbook reach of normal people. And it was also clear early on that a lot of the commercial potential for the new art and technology of photography would be in portraits of people. That's what people want to pay money for. And so obviously people wanted to start, you know, daguerreotype portraiture businesses. But there was a problem. Portraits were a very, very difficult proposition for the earliest photography methods because exposure times were still too long to sharply capture mm. live subjects. When Daguerre revealed his method, he'd gotten the – through through the chemical development, he'd gotten exposure down from hours to minutes, but even the minutes were really hard. It's hard to hold a pose without moving at all for 10 or 15 minutes, right? You, you might end up moving somehow, changing your facial expression, and that's going to create blurriness, which is going to lessen the value of the photo, which is an impediment to commercial success. And in fact, I, when I was reading about this, I started to wonder – if the, the, you know, 1840s exposure times of around 10 or 15 minutes are an explanation for why people in old photos are so rarely smiling. Oh, yeah, because, uh, I mean, I think a lot of us can, can look at this even in our own family histories. You uh -huh. dig up these old photos and it's a bunch of like – pained, goatish-looking humans, you know? <laughs> um, and, they just got bad news. Right. And, and of course, one of the things is a lot of times we're looking at pictures from, uh, you know, rougher times. So uh -huh. it, it's easy to just fall in line with thinking, oh, well, you know, it was – it was tough back then, you know. This is this photo was taken uh, perhaps at a funeral, um, but no, it's not. I mean, people in the past were happy. There were times yeah. that they smiled, uh, but the, uh, but it was just not very often in photos. And I think one reason for this is that try to hold a smile for fifteen minutes. Oh yeah, uh, or certainly anything approaching a natural looking smile. Mm -hmm. Now, this would only apply to, like, the earlier photos that had the longer exposure right. times. As, as time went on, as the years went on, exposure times got shorter and shorter, and we'll talk about how in a minute. Uh, but it's really hard to hold a smile for even just five minutes, right? And apparently, I, I'm not the first person to wonder about this. I, I was looking this up, and I found a really great 2016 piece in Vox by Phil Edwards about why people didn't smile in old photos. And there are several explanations. Uh, first point we should note is that some people actually did smile in old photos, just not as many as we're used to today. Now in our culture, when you take a picture, you smile, right? Uh, this was just not nearly as common. But I found, you know, there's one great example uh, that's kind of hard to believe it was taken in 1904. But it was taken in 1904 in China by a photographer and anthropologist named Berthold Laufer, and it looks like it was taken last year. It does. It, I mean, for one thing, it's, it's just a high quality, but a lot of it too is the fact that the uh, the individual in the photo is smiling. There is there's emotion beaming through their face. Yeah, and you just you're just not used to seeing that in pictures from 1904. And uh, and I, I think also you know we, we you mentioned uh, you know daguerreotypes in this effort to like document other places and other peoples. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you know you give rise to all this uh, anthropological photography, yeah. a, you know, which I think on one level, you know, there's this noble effort to document and understand other other people. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the, at the same time, if you can't get them to smile, if, if you're having to depend on these long exposures mm -hmm. and you're getting like a grim, dour expression, like if, if most photographic proof of the human species is is like a grim-faced person who's ready for this this long exposure to be done with. Mm -hmm. Like you're not getting a, a true sense of 
of the people. You're not you're missing out on a vital aspect of the human condition. Yeah, and I think that's one reason we're seeing here. And now this photo was taken later when exposure times were shorter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so the exposure time isn't nearly as much an issue here. But uh, this this was an anthropologist who was trying to document life. Who yeah. wasn't like you know it wasn't like this is the portrait of this man in the photo who that will be his portrait that hangs in his house forever. He's trying to show what life was like. And in life, a lot of times people smile because they're happy. This guy has got he's like a guy sitting there at a table with a bowl of rice and he looks really excited. (laughs) But anyway, even though some people did smile in old photos, if you see a photo from the U.S. or Europe from the 1800s, there's a very good chance that the subjects are not smiling. And yes, if it's a photo from those early years of photography, you know, one of the 1840s daguerreotypes, say, a good reason why nobody is smiling is probably exactly what we've been discussing. You can't hold a smile as long as they had to expose the plate. But there are some interesting other explanations mentioned in that Phil Edwards piece. Uh, One was just the idea that early photography was art and it was seen as sort of a new version of painting. Mm. And in painted portraits, generally people didn't smile because that was the artistic style. Right. So as we discussed, I think the first uh, photo episode, uh, the, 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 the photographic technology like picks up where painting left off. So the the existing styles would carry over. Right. And then I'm also imagining that if there, if there was some aspect of portraiture style that was uh, due to the limitations of the technology, such as exposure mm-hmm. times, like that would either, uh, you know, it would either further ingrain uh, the standards or it would uh, it, it would it would make this be the the standard of the photograph, you know? Yeah, like, y- you would establish conventions even if it wasn't necessarily still necessitated by the technology. Yeah, because otherwise the photographer shows up, hey, there's a new camera now, everybody can smile. You might be like, well, why would I smile? That's just not done. We didn't used to smile in photographs. Why am I? I'm not going to be the dummy to start doing it. Exactly, yeah. Uh, another point made in this Edwards piece that's interesting is that, you know, early photos are not the same as our photos. Our photos are often just ephemeral records capturing individual moments. Right. And we understand them to be about moments. They're about what was going on in this one second and how we were feeling then. And a lot of times in that vein, people want to be smiling to show they're having a good time. But photos back then weren't like that. They were sort of precious and immortal records of people as people, not a, not of moments as moments. Right. And and also they were private, which is something <laughs> that I think is easy to forget with uh, with photographs today. Now, obviously, there's still a lot of private photography. Not everybody is, you know, t- is taking their, their latest family photos and, uh, and plastering them all over the world. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people are. I mean, that's become what we do with photos. A lot of the photographs we take, we're taking to share at least with a select audience on social media or uh, to, you know, put on uh, a resume, to put on our online resume or what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And in contrast, I think these old photos, when people were first getting photo portraits made in in the 19th century, the photo was interpreted as something like a painted portrait. It was kind of a serious artifact representing your immortal character. I think the difference between a photo today and a photo of the 1850s was kind of the difference between a tweet and a eulogy. And to take that to extremes, I mean, in Victorian culture, it was a relatively common practice to photograph the dead, dead members of your family as a record of a person. Somebody in your family would die and you, the only photo of them you might have might be of them as a corpse. Yeah, I think a lot of us out there, if we look through like our, our family's photographic history, you will sometimes encounter those those photos of, say, a, a dead child. Yeah, it's very strange to us today, but it's an, another indication of how differently they thought about photography back then. Uh, and just uh, to, to cement this idea of like a, fo- a photograph being a serious thing that was about serious values and mm-hmm. not a place for smiling, uh, there was even a comment from Mark Twain who, you know, Mark Twain wasn't like a person without a sense of humor. He wrote all kinds of funny stuff. But uh, he said at one point, quote, I think a photograph is a most important document and there is nothing more damning to go down to posterity than a silly, foolish smile caught and fixed forever. <laughs> well, that's another thing to think about it with the too, right? Like nowadays with a photo shoot, you can, you can, you know, you get like a, a hundred or more images, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can, you can then decide which ones have an acceptable smile, which ones have that magical smile that feels right and also doesn't make you uh, look too silly. You can 
pinpoint the photo that makes you look the way you want to look. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, there's, you know, post uh, processes uh, as well. But, uh, yeah, I, I can see where you might say, like, why would I risk a smile? Mm-hmm. I'll just stick with uh, Sirius because I know that I can probably get that. That's a good point, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm somebody who's not good at smiling in photos. When people take pictures of me and I smile, I often see it and I'm like, oh, what was that? You know, I look like I'm like chewing on a spider or something. (laughs) uh, I don't know. I I, I can sympathize. Uh, And then finally, one last point that Edwards makes in that article is that it appears that in Europe and America during the Victorian and Edwardian periods, some people just generally didn't think highly of smiling. Like they thought smiling was a sign of stupidity. Hmm. So cultural norms just coming into play again. Right. Uh, But back to the long exposure times of the earliest portraits, Watson and Rappaport in their book have an excellent chapter about early portraits. And one of the things that they have in there is an amazing quote of a firsthand description of what it was like to pose for a daguerreotype by a Mr. Chittenden of Boston. We'll see how you like this one, Robert. Quote, The operators rolled out what looked like an overgrown barber's chair with a ballot box attachment on a staff in front of it. I was seated in the chair and his briarian arms seized me by the wrists, ankles, waist, and shoulders. There was an iron bar which served as an elongation of the spine with a crossbar in which the head rested, which held my head and neck as in a vice. Then when I felt like a martyr in the embrace of the Nuremberg Maiden, which (laughs) he's talking about the Iron Maiden there. Um, I was told to assume my best Sunday expression to fix my eyes on the first letter of the sign of a beer saloon opposite and not to move or wink on pain of spoiling the exposure. So it sounds like you have to climb into a torture device <laughs> in order to be held still for this photo. Well, you know, but but still today, if you get your photo taken by someone who knows what they're doing, you may be asked to form poses that otherwise feel unnatural mm-hmm. you know but it's uh it's 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 the thing about a, a photograph a, posing for a photograph is not necessarily a natural act right you know it is it is about the finished product and so yeah you might have to roll your shoulders in a way that you normally wouldn't or roll you know position your uh, your chin in a way that you you normally wouldn't even think about and and you do see people still gripe about getting their photo taken with this degree uh-huh. <laughs> of uh, of disdain yeah well i mean one of one of the funny things you're you're pointing out there is like how you have to sometimes act unnatural natural to look natural. Right. And this was also true in scenes in bigger scenes, not just individual portraits, but like there were stories from the days of early daguerreotypes in crowd scenes and parties where guests would sometimes be prepared in advance that at some point they would be asked to freeze to create a quote general immobility mm-hmm. for about 7 minutes so that a decent photo of the room could be taken. Obviously in a crowd scene like there're going to be details that are a little less crucial because somebody might move and they'll just be a blurry part of the photo. But just, yeah, try to imagine that you're like you're at a party and they want to get a picture of what the party looked like. So at some point, they're just going to ask everybody to hold still while they expose a daguerreotype. <laughs> yeah, everything that might be awkward in modern photography and, and you know, covering an event uh, is going to be just a, a little bit more awkward with the limited technology. Yeah. Because uh, this sounds like a lot like a grip and grin, you yeah. know, which is still a standard of you know, any time like a new business opens or, uh, you know, any kind of businessy thing happens and it needs to be documented. You're going to get that that nice staged uh, and faked uh, image of like two people shaking hands or presenting some sort of mm-hmm. document, that sort of thing. Can I tell you, I, I actually realized I have a sort of a prejudice against people who are good at posing for photos. Oh, yeah. There's something about it that when people are just really good at suddenly assuming the the pose and doing the face and they look perfectly photogenic and can do it time after time, I find that distrustful. <laughs> well, or, wait, is distrustful the right word? I, I find that untrustworthy. Untrustworthy. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Uh, I mean, most of it is just o- obeying the photographer. And, yeah. And – and yeah, I guess it, it helps if the photographer is good at communicating what they want you to do uh, with your body, you know, uh, like how to roll your shoulders or your, your your head, your chin, et cetera. Well, that's true. Even if it doesn't feel right, listen to the photographer. They can see you. You can't see you. Right. It was probably – it was even more important then, right? Because nowadays uh, the photographer can see rather instantly what the, the, the image is going to look like, mm-hmm. you know, how it's going to be uh, framed and squared. And they may even be sharing that with you, either showing you the back of their digital camera or using some sort of a uh, – like a wireless or wired uh, viewing system. Mm-hmm. But uh, – uh, 
back in uh, the, the olden days we're discussing here, like it was all, uh, if they were using a box of camera, it was all just in the box. Yeah. It's only later that the images are going to become real. Now, obviously, an exposure time of like 10 to 15 minutes for a portrait is just unsustainable. That's It doesn't really work. So people tried all kinds of things to shorten the exposure. This is also sometimes called the sitting time, right? Uh, so one thing people tried is powdering the subject's face to make it reflect more light because the brighter something is, obviously, the less time it takes to expose the photo. Even on modern cameras, you know, you can think of the analogy of how shooting in low light means you have to leave the shutter open longer. So if you basically cover somebody in, in pale powder, they reflect more light. It takes less time. Hmm. Uh, another one would be a photo studio with white plaster walls to reflect as much light as possible. Sometimes they would use like mirrors to shine more sunlight onto the subject, which sounds really comfortable. I'm sure that makes it even easier <laughs> to hold the pose when you've got like the sun in your eyes. Uh, sometimes they tried like blue glass to make bright light from the windows less painful on the eyes of the subject who just had to sit there staring into the sun. Uh, supposedly, Henry Fox Talbot worked around this. He tried to reduce uh, sitting times by using a smaller camera. The light had to travel less distance and thus it would be brighter and took less time to expose. There were some improvements in lenses and general camera design. Uh, there was a guy named Richard Beard who had a studio with a chair that rotated to get the best sun. Uh, but the biggest improvements came in advances in chemistry. So around the mid-1840s, people started using additional sensitizing chemicals. Remember, Daguerre only had to use iodine to, to, to sensitize the silver plate. But there were a couple of guys named Paul Beck Goddard in the, in the United States and John Frederick Goddard in England that they're not related, just – both happened to be Goddard's. Uh, they started using uh, bromine fumes to make the plate even more sensitive to light so it would capture more detail in less time. And then there was a French photographer named Antoine Claudet who used chlorine fumes in addition to the iodine to make the plates more sensitive. So by further sensitizing the plate, they could make it gather more light data in less time. And these improvements paired with better lenses and, and cameras and good light altogether reduced exposure times from minutes to a matter of seconds. Now, of course, one thing that's funny is that uh, – we mentioned the idea that a lot of traditional artists didn't love the idea of photo portraits because they might have seen it as replacing the work they were doing. But there's another thing not everybody loved about photo portraiture, which is that photos are too accurate. They're not always flattering. A painter could do the equivalent of photoshopping you to get the ward off your eyelid or to make you look taller. A daguerreotype is depressingly, almost violently accurate, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, yeah, there were there were only so many things you could do uh, in order to cover up uh, blemishes, etc., when using the daguerreotype. Now, that's not to say that there weren't uh, hand painted, say, improvements to daguerreotypes at the time. There actually were, though a lot, a lot of people thought these looked bad. Uh, like one of the things that started happening early, pretty early on was hand-painted coloration of daguerreotypes, which mm -hmm. of course because it was not f color photography and people were like, well, where's the color? Some people had the idea of, well, we'll just paint the colors in. But of course that made it look less like a realistic photo and more like a hand-painted thing. Yeah, more like a um, like an illustration from a William uh, Blake uh, uh, publication, right? Yeah. No, of course, there's no way to talk about all the many different little incremental improvements and new methods that emerged in the following decades in the 1840s and 50s. But one that's really worth mentioning, I think, would be uh, Frederick Scott Archer's wet plate method of photography. Yes. Mm -hmm. This was really important, which used a treatment called a collodion, which it was this thick liquid made out of like cotton dissolved in nitric acid. And then you'd mix that with alcohol and ether. And then you'd apply that to a glass plate to sensitize it. And this method actually got the best of both worlds between Daguerre's daguerreotype and Henry Fox Talbot's callotype. It made a reproducible negative image like the callotype, so you could make copies, but it also it was sharp like the daguerreotype. Remember, the callotype was – people thought it looked kind of fuzzy and less realistic and, and striking than the daguerreotype. So this got the best of both worlds. But uh, speaking of quick turnaround on photos, one, one type of photochemical process that came along to improve the speed and convenience of photo production was what came to be known as the ferrotype or the tintype. Yeah, this is uh, this was really interesting. So ferrotype is the more 
uh, authentic term here. Right. Uh, More accurate. Yeah. Tintype was kind of the informal um, uh, term, which is like tin, as you'll see, it, it has to do with the, the, the seeming cheapness of the, of the material. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in an 1850s uh, photography innovation that became uh, really popular in the 1870s. It was first described in 1853 by Adolf Alexandre Martin, uh, but it was patented in 1857 by Hamilton Smith in America and by Clone and Jones in England. It used a process similar to wet plate photography that we were just talking about. Uh, it would produce an underexposed negative image on an iron plate. And this is a very – when I say iron plate, I don't want you to imagine uh, like an enormous thick like bullet uh, mm. catching piece of iron. It's very thin and this is where we get the tin type because oh, okay. it was uh, like this, this very thin layer. Um, and then I'm imagining was, one of those like aluminum foil baking dishes. Yeah, something along the, that, those lines. So then it was blackened by a, a painting or lacquering and then coated with an emulsion. And the, the dark background of the plate gave the image life. And tindypes didn't require special backing. Uh, all of this could be done in a matter of minutes even. So you're preparing it, you're exposing it, you're developing and you're varnishing it. So this is essentially the first type of instant photo, right? It was kind of like the Polaroid cameras you'd see later where you could you could have the image ready in just a few minutes. Yeah, and but also it was more affordable than the daguerreotype. So mm-hmm. it was a, a, another one of these cases where the technology is being um, uh, changed in a way that makes it reach more people. Yeah. And I, I think one of the, the interesting things in the with the uh, with the innovations and uh, inventions that remain in this episode is that at this point we're really getting into photography not merely as a single invention, right. not even really as a, as you know a sort of a cloud of various folks working all over the world and making uh, slight changes, but we're getting into photography as an industry, mm-hmm. uh, f- photography as, uh, as a business, and it really begins to take on a life all its own. Uh, one of the the key examples here is George Eastman's Kodak, which we'll talk about when we come back from one more break. All right, we're back. So everybody's heard of Kodak, right? Right. And you've probably heard of heard of George Eastman, uh, not the uh, Italian B movie actor, uh, <laughs> but but the but the historic, uh, the, the the truly famous George Eastman. And uh, yeah, his uh, advancements with Kodak here really took something that was previously this kind of science experiment of uh, contraption, Mm -hmm. something best uh, left to experts and the wealthy and adventurers, and really made huge strides in putting it towards putting it in the hands of everyday people. It seems like it was the next big step down in in democratizing the the art for everybody. So the daguerreotype and the calotype, like those made uh, imagery, realistic imagery, much more accessible than just painting portraiture had been. Mm -hmm. And then Kodak goes even farther. Yes. So uh, George Eastman lived 1820 through 1910. He was a a largely self-educated guy. He was the son of a New York politician and educator, Harvey G. Eastman, founder of Eastman's Commercial College in Rochester. And at the age of 23, uh, George Eastman obtained a camera for a vacation trip that he was going to go on. So... If he was born in 1820 and he was at the age of 23, this would have been about 1843, just about three or four years after the daguerreotype process was publicly revealed. Right. So, you know, he was going to do what a lot of us do now and take for granted. I'm going to bring a camera on a vacation, get some photos, yeah. you know, contribute to this 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 craze of photography that's sweeping uh, the world. Uh, but he ended up not ended up not making the trip. Uh, but the equip, equipment uh, that he had picked up it fascinated him. But he he had some issues with the cost, with the weight, and with the awkward design of the equipment. All of this mm-hmm. irked him. So he spent three years experimenting with gelatin emulsions in his mother's kitchen. <laughs> And uh, in 1878, he demonstrated how effective gelatin dry plates could be uh, as opposed to wet plates. This is is an improvement. Wet plates, uh, uh, which had to be coated, exposed, and developed while still wet, uh, you know, that puts some limitations on how much time can pass uh, after the photograph before developing it. Yeah, with Archer's method, there are these stories about how you would have to have portable dark rooms, yeah. right? Because if you wanted to take a picture of something out in nature, out in the field, you'd have to get, make the emulsion and get it wet and all that and take the photo immediately before it dried out, and you'd have to do all this in the dark. Yeah. 
But with this uh, gelatin method, the dry plates could be exposed and then you could develop them later at your leisure. Um, like you, suddenly it's not just off to the races when you mm -hmm. take a picture. Then in 1880, he invented and patented uh, a dry plate coating machine, and this allowed for the commercial production of these dry plates. And so at this point, things begin to get more uh, businessy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, with the backing of Rochester businessman Henry Strong, he forms the Eastman Dry Plate Company in 1881. And then this was reincorporated as the Eastman Dry Plate and Film Company in 1884, and then as Eastman Kodak Company in 1892. Uh, and of course, Kodak uh, is still around today. It's still a publicly traded company. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, you know, despite all the the changes that have occurred in the photographic world, I, th I think it's you know it's a testament to the impact this company had to realize that it is it is still there. Now, as a photography business, Kodak wasn't just uh, working on like the the media for the production, like the plates themselves. They actually did work on cameras, right? Yeah. Uh, one of the big things they did is they developed more affordable and easy-to-use cameras. Uh, certainly by 1888, uh, this was uh, uh, when they started busting out the box camera. So the box camera is – when I say a box, you, look at, you can look up pictures of these. They did look like a box, mm -hmm. just with like a, a hole in, in one end for the lens. It had, But it had the lens, uh, film, everything you needed to take a basic photograph. Uh, this wasn't the, the first box camera uh, in uh, 1888 uh, – that Kodak rolled out, but it was the first commercially viable one. And their, mo their motto was, you press the button, we do the rest. Okay. Uh, which is also just, you know, it's a, it's a great slogan. But, the, but yeah, they've taken this thing that we've described, this laborious process, and they've put it in a box and you push a button and you're essentially good to go. And uh, this is also really the point at which modern snapshot photography truly becomes possible. Uh, just a really a major moment in the accessibility of photography. You don't have to set out to do this science experiment. You can just grab your camera and go. So uh, other uh, key uh, moments from the history of Kodak, and I'm, we're not going to be able to cover it all because, again, this is a, a company with a long history, but they established professional photo finishing. They developed a flexible celluloid film that would be extremely important in the development of motion pictures. Oh, yeah. Which we'll get to, uh, I believe, in the next episode unless we take a photo break. I'm not yeah. sure what we're going to – Well, certainly in an episode soon in the future. Yes. Uh, 1895, they busted out the pocket Kodak camera. 1898, the folding pocket camera. And uh, then in 1900, the $1 brownie camera, huh. which uh, I was not familiar with this one. Looked up pictures of it. It's a little box camera, and it has this kind of cartoon uh, um, Tweedledum, Tweedledee kind of character on the side. <laughs> uh -huh. And yeah, it was a camera you could buy for a dollar. Uh, granted, those were $1,900, but still um, – like this is the uh, the the camera becoming ever more inexpensive and ever more available to the people at large. Well, I think one thing that we should make a distinction about is the democratization of access to photography as like like a thing you could get, like a portrait made. Versus the democratization of photography as something you could do yourself choosing what to take a photo of, right? Right. Because – so there were people who were – you know, who would take a daguerreotype of you in the 1840s and the 1850s that you could pay and that made it affordable for people to get an image of themselves. But if you wanted to go out in the world and take a picture of something that struck your fancy, this is where that that's really changing. Yeah. Um, other uh, advancements, in 1902, they had rolled out the developing machine that meant you could develop your own film without a darkroom. Mm -hmm. uh, aerial photography advancements took place in 1917. So here we see you know, the, uh, uh, the advancement of photography lining up with advancements in other fields. Mm -hmm. uh, 1935, you get Kodachrome, the first commercially successful amateur color film. And uh, 1937, you get uh, uh, the Kodaslide projector. Uh, so uh, kind of uh, going back to the uh, – some of the ideas of the, the camera obscura, right? Like yeah. now we're taking our images and we're projecting them onto the wall again only. We're doing it right side up this time and with more clarity. And uh, again, this is just a sample uh, because, of course, Kodak is – was one of the world's leading photo technology companies. Uh, but I think it does highlight just the kind of – um, really rapid advancements you see and certain business savvy advancements that end up taking place once uh, the invention becomes the property of industry. And of course, it would play into other industries as well. Um, 
uh, Kodak would end up uh, being involved in uh, not only the development of motion pictures, which we alluded to already, but also the x-ray industry. Oh, yeah. Which we've uh, already podcasted on. Well, yeah. I mean, that's something to think about. Now, as we consider the legacy of photography, especially in the early years, one really positive and practical use we should think of coming out of photography, I think, is going back to x-rays and Röntgen. Like, the use of various forms of photography in medicine has been absolutely incalculable in the good it's provided. And, and people, you know, when we express gratitude for modern medicine, we often correctly think to mention things like vaccines and antibiotics and uh, anesthetics and modern surgical techniques. It's I think it less often occurs to us to think of medical imaging as mm -hmm. something to be thankful for. Uh, but the radical advancement of medical imaging is one of the most important things that happened in medicine over the past 200 years. It, it improves accuracy and diagnosis of internal problems, which drastically improves outcomes. And it can, in a way, all be traced back to photography. Now, again, there are just so many – Photo photographic innovations and inventions we were just not going to have time to cover. Like the Polaroid was a, yeah. a, a major point. And I, I remember just being fascinated by the Polaroid camera when I was a child. Yeah, the idea how does could, it work? You could point the camera, uh, take the picture, out it comes, you just kind of shake it or let it do its thing, and uh, the image materializes there. You didn't have to take film anywhere to be developed. There were, you, know, you didn't have to uh, stick anything in a little tube. It was just there it was, ready to go, immortalized. In fact, as we all discovered when we got older, you didn't even actually have to shake it. <laughs> um, you know, one of the funny things that I was reading about was how in the early days, daguerreotype as a word, it got the same sort of treatment as words like Band-Aid and Xerox, where a specific brand name mm -hmm. uh, came to be used as a stand-in for all technologies of its type. Like there's a story that Henry Fox Talbot was distressed to find out that his calotype method was sometimes being referred to as the paper daguerreotype. <laughs> oh, <laughs> what a kick in the face. So let's talk just a little bit more about, about the legacy of the, of the photograph. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've touched on a lot of this already in the previous two episodes, but, you know, there's a tremendous amount to be said about the idea of the photograph as an objective statement of truth. Mm -hmm. And in many ways it is. Uh, you know, it would prove a highly essential tool in journalism and the documentation of wars and strife, as well as in, you know, positive mov uh, movements and humanizing moments in, in uh, you know, recent uh, human history. Uh, we can easily think to the really jarring photographs of misery and death in wartime, of racial strife, of protest, uh, but also the, the humanizing mov mo moments where, uh, you know, an individual that might otherwise be, uh, you know, considered, you know, an, an other and, and, and dehumanized or made more human through the imagery. I wonder if the widespread use of realistic imagery, photography, and then later on motion pictures and video – is to some degree responsible for the increasing appreciation of human rights in the 20th century. Like the idea that, oh, m you know, maybe people in a place other than where I am do matter and have the same, you know, rights and concerns that I do. Yeah. It's, yeah, but on the other hand, though, you know, there are examples of uh, the photograph being used, I think, as a tool of – um, you know, who want to focus on the otherness of different races and cultures, as well as by those who wish to, uh, you know, to highlight our similarities. Um, you know, we should remember that uh, it was not only – photography was not only used to document uh, things in a positive manner. It was also used in an attempt to control people. Uh, photography has been used as a tool of state control, of social control, as a means of tracking individuals. Um, you know, it is, uh, it's been a tool of propaganda as well. It's been a tool of blackmail and exploitation. Uh, you know, they, these are not cases where the invention necessarily changes human nature, but it's always worth remembering that human nature is going to shine through a technology, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that means in both positive and negative ways, like the, the things that make humans admirable. Uh, we're going to see that in a ubiquitous technology, but we're also going to see uh, uh, our awfulness. I guess the, I guess one of the things you see that I guess you see both of those in say um, uh, wartime photography and mm -hmm. journalistic photography where you're capturing the ugliness but you're trying to bring the truth of the ugliness out in a way that that uh, that can benefit us that can enable us to move past it you know and um, 
you know, I guess ultimately that's what we have to to try and grab onto in uh, in, in in looking at uh, our history of technology. But again, always just coming back to the realization that technology is uh, any given technology is not good or evil. Uh, it is uh, it is all about the way that it is utilized. Well, yeah, that's true because technology does not act on its own. Though at the same time, I'm certainly of the opinion that. Not all technology is, say, uh, neutral or or equally neutral. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, technology doesn't do anything until it's used by people. But there are technologies that have technologies have inherent tendencies. Yeah, they have ways that are that in which they can easily be used and deployed. And so I I don't think that like all technologies are on an equal footing in terms of like how harmful they are likely to be. In some cases, this is really clear. I mean, obviously, like a uh, 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 like a, a poison gas or a gun is not the same as like a method of sterilizing wounds. You know, right. th th these like have inherent tendencies that make them more easy to be used for good or evil. Photography is one of those big ones where you know it's it, 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 its scope is so broad that it's hard to it's hard to put it in one of those categories. Uh, it's it's used for everything because it is the objective record of life. It is the objective record of the world. And thus, in any case where it can be useful to represent the world, which is in almost every domain of human life, it can be used. Can be. Yeah. <laughs> Being the, uh, the, the, the key here, though. Uh, but but no, for the most part, I, I, I definitely agree that, that photography has had tremendous positive impact. But I, I just think we have to keep in mind uh, the areas where it has been used uh, uh, for ill as well. All right, so there you have it, uh, photography. Uh, I think I think that'll do it. Uh, th three episodes. Uh, there's a lot to cover. We didn't cover uh, nearly all of it, but hopefully, everyone will leave these episodes with a new, uh, you know, a new respect and even awe of what photographs do for us mm -hmm. and and what kind of amazing power we have you know in our pockets right now most of us uh, in the modern digital camera now as we uh, we mentioned we're, we're not done with, uh, with with photos we're certainly not done with uh, the image we're hopefully going to move on to uh, motion pictures at some point in the future here uh, but uh, uh, yeah this was a fun one I really feel like I, I learned uh, some things I wasn't aware of uh, regarding the history of photography and I have a new respect for the medium myself yeah totally this has proved very rich subject matter in the meantime if you want to check out more episodes of invention head on over to inventionpod.com that's where you'll find the episodes and uh, if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is just make sure you have subscribed. And then if you uh, uh, can leave us a nice rating, a nice review wherever you get the show, that would also be tremendously helpful. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.